You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And, oh, I tell you what, before we do anything else, people keep mentioning this this to me, and I always forget, but I have actually written it down tonight, so I am going to do it. I'm going to send a request out to everybody listening. If you enjoyed what you've heard so far, then please leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. Apparently it helps. Hmm, apparently so. I should have left that for the end of the episode because obviously we've not done <laughs> but anything. You won't yet. remember. I won't remember. No, Joe, you just want to know whether the episodes without us are, be- are getting better ratings well, than all, the ones. All you need to do guess. is go to iTunes, type in Nerdology UK podcast, and just rate it five <laughs> stars, and that will be perfect. How do you spell that? That's N E R D O L O G Y U K. Oh I should, God! I should if do we that haven't tonight. got. <laughs> As if we haven't got enough to get through as it is. Okay, here's a quick email from The Great Intelligence. He says, an idea for your 100th podcast. Actually, I should have saved this for the actual 100th podcast, you know, where we're doing the ideas. Mm. Oh, that's another shout-out I should make, isn't it? We've got our 100th podcast coming up in a few weeks, and we'd like people to send in questions or topics that we can cover so that the 100th episode is... An interactive episode between us and the listener, like our questions episode was about a year and a half ago, where we do what you tell us to. So if you have an idea, something you'd like us to cover, either get in touch with us on Facebook, Blue Box Podcast, our Facebook page, or email blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk and send us your suggestion. And the great intelligence suggestion is as follows. An idea for your hundredth. It should be called... The name of the Southall, and the preceding podcast should hint that we are going to find out what the JR means. Of course, he's we obviously never not do. heard the earlier one, has he? No, you mentioned it, didn't you? It was I you, did, wasn't yeah. it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, Jam I roll. it was. Yeah. Jam roll. Jam roll. Do you remember <laughs> J Rocks? Do you remember <laughs> what podcast it was you mentioned it on, Mark? Oh, I've slept yeah. since then. You just have to. In great intelligence, you have to go back to all the old episodes and listen to every single one just to hear that reference. Okay, that's a good idea. That's a good suggestion. Great intelligence, if you're listening, and I know you are, just go back through all of our previous podcasts and find the one during the course of which Mark reveals all. And I also say your name. (laughs) Stands for, uh, what does it stand for? Jelly Rump or something like that. I prefer Simon's suggestion. What was that? Jam roll. Jam roll. <laughs> Don't you think that's sweet? Yes. I that's wouldn't quite, mind if yeah, it was that's that. Quite sweet. Oh, but talking about my name brings us on to that email from Weird Bean we had a long time ago and we just don't seem to have got back around to because it's just been so crazy hectic, guys. Am I doing a bit of smashy and nicey tonight? <laughs> I can't tell the difference. I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? Okay, focus. All right, Weird Bean says said 
months ago. Hi, blue boxers. Looking forward to blah, blah, blah. Oh, name of the Doctor and day of the Doctor is a double bill and thought of a question for you. The Doctor says that the name you choose is like a promise. So why not each of you consider what name you would choose and what promise you would be making? I have to confess that I can't remember what promise I was making when I chose the name Weird Bean, but I'm pretty sure booze was involved. Keep <laughs> up the good work. Right, guys. Are we each going to choose a name for ourselves and say mm. what the promise is held within that name? Yeah. yeah. Mark, would mm. you like to kick things off? Okay, well, obviously in the history of Doctor Who, we've had various Time Lords um, who've had a slightly religious air to them. So we've had uh, Choji in John Pertwee's final story. And of course, we've had the meddling monk, Lee's favourite. Um, so I've decided I'm going to be the ambivalent abbot. I thought you were going to be the blue nun for a minute. No. <laughs> the German wine, yeah. yeah <coughs> the ambivalent um, abbot. Yeah, my promise <laughs> is that um, I won't get involved in anything that could possibly kill me or even be vaguely that exciting. Um, at the moment, I'm so tired, I will probably just jump into my TARDIS, find a nice planet that's uh, quite uh, quiet and relaxing and spend a few hours there and then come back again so I've only been away for like a few seconds and carry on looking after my little boy who you can probably hear screaming in the background. Mm. Well, that's brilliant, Mark. Thank you very much. Simon. Mm. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, um, God, you've really thought about that, Mark. That's not fair. Yeah, I know. Did anybody else? No, I mean, I, I can only think of something that's appropriate to me and it sounds really pretentious. Be the, the artist. That is, like that. Really goes, isn't it? it is really pretentious, isn't it? It is really pretentious. But then, but then, I don't know, the fall of the Arcadia or something like that, somebody's got to have painted it, haven't they? So, yeah, why not? Wow. Why not? You seem to have skipped a word there, Simon. <laughs> oh, I did think of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lee, have you got one? Yeah, I didn't know we had two words. Um, <clears throat> well, I was thinking about uh, the nurse uh, originally, because mm. A, I look good in a nurse's outfit. I have done before. And You've the, got the legs for it, mate. I know, thank you very much. I've got a good bedside manner. Uh, hang on, generally. hang on, hang on, hang what? on. You what? look good in a nurse's outfit. How long did that take you to stop me? <laughs> I was, I was sipping tea the at thought, the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was well, processing they... brown <laughs> liquid. I'll put a photo up one day. Um, no, but I've, ch I've changed. My, I've changed. I want. I want to be called the listener. If because you want to put ironic a photo as that up, is. <laughs> if you want to put a photo up of you looking good in a nurse's outfit, you then I suggest it. the radio show is probably the best place to I do can, it because nobody envisage, will be able to disagree with you. I can envisage a lot more people processing brown liquid, can't you? The irony of Lee calling himself the listener as he talks over JR is I know. superb. I was about go to... back to your nickname of the artist there, Simon. <laughs> Carry on, actually, you're in full flow. Mark, now, you? Mark, you literally <laughs> took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say it's ironic because I do talk a lot, but I am a good listener and I, I will listen to people's problems and I'll help them sort them out. So I thought the listener, there you go. Mm. The, okay, lovely, fair enough. the lovely listener. Would you knock about with the watcher then? Like the a watch. double act. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. The listener reminds me of our audience. I'm not sure why. Yeah. The watcher, the listener, it's a good job neither of you decided to call yourself the looker. <laughs> what, is which, that what which JR leaves you with? I'm not calling myself anything. I didn't come up with one. What? The beep. I, I, I cheated. I came up with a nickname that somebody else gave me. The postman? What, the, to the, tosser? Seen, the tosser? The <laughs> tosser. 
harsh. Are we, are we speaking euphemistically again? Yeah, yeah, the man who tosses things around. It's not. Yeah, okay. tosses, tosses them up in the air and it all falls down. It's not the one way. that Matt West uses for you, is it? Oh, no, you can't repeat that on a podcast. Whoa. They called you on the Diddly Dumb podcast last time round. Oh, what did they call me? Jar Jar. Oh, Jar Jar. No, no. I was going to use an old one that somebody called me years ago that kind of stuck. And okay, it's cheating to use one that somebody else has come up with, but you know, whatever. So somebody called me the Gallifrey and Yoda, and, you know, it seems vaguely You're not that short, mate, come on. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> I'm not that old either, but... That's so going to be photo... You're, you're going to be photoshopped oh, nice. now. It's already happened. There's a picture out there. <laughs> okay, guys, I've got a challenge for you. <laughs> and that wasn't... On the spot... You've got 60 seconds to persuade me that the on-the-spot little uh, format that we do every now and again should be axed in favour of a new format, which you guys won't be put on the spot for. 60 seconds starting now. Persuade me to get rid of it. Oh, it's, we've done enough of them, and um, it's, change is always a good thing. And every I podcast, th- and his dog is doing it now. Um, diddly yeah, dumb. I, and, yeah, I know. What's that other is one? It, the it, memory cheats. Yeah, they cheated and stole your <laughs> idea, didn't they? Yeah. They did. They went back in time as well and, and started it before we did. Um, no, well, we could do it till the 100th and then stop. Oh, no, we I could. Or I might just happen to have a new little feature to put on the podcast starting yeah. tonight. And do so... you know what? I, I, I feel that we need to hear what that is first before we make our decision. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what it is. But you know what? On the spot, I've not done so much of it lately anyway. And do you know why? I was hoping one of you would come up with this, but I did kind of put you on the spot a bit there, didn't I? Because we're not on as many episodes as we used to be. (laughs) (laughs) No, not that. The fact that on the spot used to be where I'd put you on the spot and say a name of an episode out of thin air and you'd have to talk about it. But actually, seeing as we covered a lot of topics in our first sort of six or 12 months, we've been doing a lot of season podcasts lately, so we're actually talking about the stories anyway. So the number of stories I could put you on the spot for is diminishing rapidly. Mm, okay. Okay, but here's an email I got uh, from somebody called Grant Nock. Oh, yeah. And this hey, new Grant. segment to replace On The Spot is going to be called Nock's Box. And I shall, well, you'll find out why. He emailed in to say, Hello, gents. Only discovered your podcast a few weeks ago and have been working my way randomly through old episodes. Really enjoying it. Although JR does occasionally make me want to throw my MP3 player to the floor and stamp on it repeatedly. Join the club, mate. (laughs) But his enthusiasm for the Moffat era, an era that I've not been the biggest fan of, has made me go back and re-watch these stories. We'll let you know how this goes. Looking forward to your future podcasts. Keep up the good work. Well, and I was struck by an idea. So I emailed him back, and I think I might as well read my reply because, you know, I'm only going to say it if I don't read it, so I might as well just read what I said in the first place. I said to him, all I can say is, if you're considering throwing your MP3 player to the floor and stamping on it repeatedly, then my work here is done. Seriously, though, I hope you enjoy the rest of the rewatch as much as you seem to have enjoyed the 11th hour, because Grant Nog had just tweeted about having watched the 11th hour. He says, I said... 
I often find that the Moffat stories defy expectations so much that it takes a second viewing to appreciate them. Not that television ought to take two viewings to get, but because as fans we often expect our series to be a certain way. And I think that one of Moffat's great strengths is that, in spite of being a fan himself, he's only too happy to subvert those expectations by doing something else entirely. And although I was in the same place as you when Series 5 was first broadcast, I've come to love the era almost because of the way it doesn't confirm, conform to what Doctor Who is perceived to be. Vive la différence, as they say. Keep us informed of your rewatch. That might actually be quite a fascinating experiment and something our listeners would surely be interested to hear about. In fact, if you'd like to email me a short synopsis of your weekly viewing, I'll try and make room for it, as long as it is, is short, that is, on the podcast every week. So what do you think, guys? Knox Box. A listener goes back to the start of the Moffat era and watches... I don't know how many episodes he'll get through a week, and sends us a couple of sentences about each one to let us know whether he enjoyed it more than he did the first time. I think yeah, it's I a think winner. So. I do as well. The fact is, uh, JR, and I hate to admit this, but um, after hundreds of hours with you, uh, you have convinced me that um, Moffat is uh, a lot better than I originally thought he was. And I have been going back and rewatching him with my son, and we've both been finding a lot more in it. <clears throat> and I've been kind of taken on your view of it, and yeah, it's it's that's annoying, really. That I'm, <laughs> I'm and we gonna, have, and I, I do tend to do I, this. I think I've done I? a little bit of sick in my throat, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I do tend to do this, and I have, you know, we do occasionally get emails in. Well, you made me go back and rewatch something, and actually, it was a lot better than I thought it was the first time. Or alternately, people might go back and rewatch things and think, no, what are you talking about? You're talking rubbish. It's just as crap as I thought it was. But here is a new listener, and I've asked him to sort of email us short reviews of each of the stories as he goes through. So over the next few weeks and months, we'll have Grant Knox reviews of, you know, the entire Stephen Moffat era on the podcast, which fits in nicely with you know, the way we've been doing the podcast for the last few that, weeks and that's months. That's brilliant. Have you got a little jingle that goes with it? Knox box. Well, you know, I don't tend to edit the podcast, so there won't be jingles. But, uh, yeah, okay, I can think of one. Maybe, how about this? Knox box. How's that, oh, Wow, that's that sounded That sounded pretty good. I like that. <laughs> okay, well, we do have his first two. Oh, and also, I should tell the listeners that if they want to follow him on Twitter because I'm assuming he'll probably tweet about these things as he goes through, mm -hmm. they should look for Grant at Cult of Morbius. I was chatting to him the other day, and he said he'd never watched uh, Tooth and Claw. Oh, yeah, I saw that conversation. Yeah, bonkers. When I was looking up his thoughts on the 11th hour. Yeah. Anyway, shall we have the first edition of Knox Box? <laughs> go on, him. Yeah, go on, him. Are we all going to do it together on three, two, one? Knox, Knox Box! Box. Excellent. Uh, Knox Box number one. The 11th hour. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Really enjoyed it. A very assured and confident start. Matt Smith was excellent, as is young Amelia. The Beast Below. That wasn't too bad. Thought it was pretty good for a filler story. Smith was very good again, especially when giving Amy a telling off. And that's it. Now we should do Knox Box backwards to show that we're coming out of it. So is everybody ready for this? Yeah. On three, two, one. Box knobs. <laughs> God knows how that sounds, mm. but uh, 
that's our jing. Right, okay, let's move on. That's Noxbox. I thought that was an excellent way to start the show. Even though we've been going for something like quarter of an hour already. <laughs> and I suppose we ought to say what the subject of tonight's episode is going to be, yes? Might be an idea. Okay. And uh, before you say what it's going to be, Mark, because I'm going to ask you to reveal what it's going to be, I would just like to inform the listener that this is not a euphemism. What is the subject for tonight's episode? Male companions. You see, it could sound like a euphemism, especially if you said it like this. Male companions. <laughs> Do you see how that works? It's incredible. Okay, the thing about this is, we had another email from Al Miles, also known as Frank Mole, who got in touch with us, also regarding our 100th podcast, to give us a topic to cover in the 100th podcast. And, you know, these topics in the 100th podcast are supposed to be like little five-minute things. He said, I wouldn't mind hearing some discussion of the relative merits of the male companions through the decades. And it struck me, A, we're not going to get through that in five minutes, are we? Probably not. But also, B, wouldn't that make just a great topic for discussion for an episode in itself? So, I have a list in front of me of the male companions in Doctor Who down the years. And there really haven't been all that many. And there's a couple of ringers on this list because I thought they might be worth mentioning. But rather than just go through and say, OK, I really liked him and I didn't like him so much. And he was OK. And he was a bit of a waste of time. Patrick. And so on and so forth. <laughs> <clears throat> well, yeah, that's a bit like what I'm thinking when I've got your three faces coming up on the screen in front of me on Skype. Is that what you're saying? Okay. You've upset me now. Well, I didn't say you were a waste of time. Ah, ah we didn't say well, anything. I didn't, I didn't specify it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, what I want to do is go through the male companions, and no, I want to really? work out. <laughs> <laughs> that was a euphemism. Just waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which ones? Uh, not so much which ones were any good. But which ones had an effect on the programme? Which ones which ones could we have done without? Which ones couldn't we have done without? You know, what did they bring to the show, basically? Hmm. Because, okay. OK, I'm going to throw this out right at the start. The male companions and the female companions in Doctor Who. OK, here, a question then. Rather than try and spell it out, here's a question. Sarah Jane Smith, for example. Would it have made any difference to the stories that featured Sarah Jane Smith, you know, Invasion of the Dinosaurs or Pyramids of Mars or The Mask of Mandragora? Would it have made a great deal of difference in any of those stories if she had been a he? If there had been a male rather than a female companion? And specifically, take a look at the arc in space and who gets to do the physical stuff in that story? Who's the one who has to go scrambling through the ducting? with the wires mm. so my thought is this we go through the male companions and what we discuss <clears throat> what we try and figure out is would the stories have worked without those particular characters removed from them altogether you know do those really do they really bring anything to those episodes those stories and also does the gender 
bring anything to those stories? Does it make a difference, the fact that you have got a male companion, and usually alongside a female companion as well? Okay, we must start with Ian Chesterton. I mean, first off, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Did there have to be a male companion right back at the start of Doctor Who? Would we have missed him had he not been there? I think the balance was perfect. And if you were to take Ian away, it would be, you know, it would be it would be unbalanced. I mean, Barbara is a particular type of a female. Susan is a particular type of a female. And so is Ian a particular type of a male. So they had to have that kind of stereotypical balance within the TARDIS, I think. But specifically why? Sorry? Specifically why? Oh. Ian, does the actual, the, um, the Ian does all the physical stuff, Yeah, he does the physical stuff. He's like the father, basically. You've got the grandfather, father, mother, and the daughter, haven't you? That's how it kind of works. Well, Ian is the primary hero of the show in those mm-hmm. first few stories. Um, That's what he's there for. Let's, I mean, if we rewind a little and, and look at the, the female role in the series, <clears throat> interestingly, if you think, what what is the, what is the female doing there? In more recent years, you have romantic interest with the Doctor, which you know a lot of us are uncomfortable with. But <laughs> primarily, the the woman is there as the damsel in distress, and therefore, with William Hartnell being the Doctor that he was, and the way he was a thinker, he wasn't a, obviously he wasn't a physical doer because of his age. But oh, was there. you've not seen the Romans, then, Mister Brett? <laughs> no, not not recently. No, no. But um, all I'm saying is that he, Ian's role is essentially to be the one to get the damsel out of distress. That's the way I see it. And in, okay, this in the 60s, right? We're going to find this in the 60s. In the 60s, the setup is that the Doctor is the wise man, the professor, the wizard. He's not the doer. He's the... Uh, He's the maker of doings as opposed to the doer of doings, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. The thinker, yeah. <clears throat> so, yes, and the female role is to be the damsel in distress. The male role, the role of the male companion, is to be the hero, to be mm. the person who gets mm. people out of trouble. Mm. And you notice that as soon as Ian and Barbara go, because here's the thing, Ian and Barbara are... Our eyes and ears into the series right back at the very start. Susan Mm. and the Doctor are the aliens. And we get to know them through Ian and Barbara's eyes. And Ian is the ego and Barbara is the id, if you want to put it in those terms. Barbara is our heart into the series and Ian is like our eyes, our physical strength Mm. sort of side of it. Mm -hmm. So he's the doer, she's the seer you know, the understander and you've got the alien girl and the wizard, the maker of doings, as I put it. (laughs) And as soon as Ian and Barbara go, they don't replace Barbara, they just replace Ian. Because at that juncture in the programme, you no longer need her eyes into it anymore, because by this point you've got to know the Doctor and Susan's gone and been replaced by Vicky and Vicky's relatively straight replacement for Susan. She's from the future, so again, she has knowledge that is beyond the ken of the viewer, ostensibly. So she is like Susan. She's the very young girl who is somewhat beyond what we understand. And so you need to bring in another alpha male. But at this juncture in the programme, you can ditch Barbara because you don't need her anymore. 
Yeah. And when I say you don't need her anymore, I'm not I'm not saying that to disparage the character or the actress, but what I'm saying is her role within the concept of the program is gone. But you do need the male hero because even in spite of the Romans, you know, you still de- you still do need a doer of the doings. So once Ian's gone, you've got to replace him pretty sharpish with Stephen. And then when Stephen goes, again, the female role at that point is Dodo, isn't it? The female role at that juncture with um, Jerry Davis and Niz Lloyd having mm-hmm. taken over, the female role becomes more of a damsel in distress than ever because those two guys bring some very old-fashioned storytelling to Doctor Who and, you know, Dodo gets treated so badly because they just don't care. They just need a female presence there to get in trouble for, you know, the Doctor and the male companion to get her out of it. The Doctor by doing the thinking, the male companion by doing the fighting or the physical Mm. stuff, however you want to phrase it. So then you get Ben and Polly. And Ben, again, is just the same as Stephen and Ian have been. I mean, if any of you want to sort of jump in and stop me, because I seem to be working my way rather quickly through this. but That's an interesting diatribe. Carry on. Okay, an interesting what? (laughs) Monologue. Rant. (laughs) Well, okay. As soon as I'm on this roll, I'll get to the end of the 60s, and then we can go back and you can discuss whether you think I was right and what you think I might have missed. So, your three male companions for the William Hartnell Doctor are all essentially the same. They're an Mm. alpha male hero, the doer of the doings. And then something really strange happens. You replace William Hartnell with Patrick Troughton. And Patrick Troughton, he's not that much younger than William Hartnell. And although he runs around a bit and he's sprightly, he's still the thinker rather than the doer. But he brings a different kind of thinking to the show. Rather than the first Doctor, the first Doctor really is the wizard character. Whereas the Patrick Troughton comes in as the Uncle Professor He's kind of slightly madder. His thinking is a little bit more left field. And you don't need the sort of hero character as much anymore because now the stories have been resolved not through brute force, but through left field thinking, through lateral thinking. And then coincidentally, at the same time, Jamie comes in. Now, Jamie is ostensibly an alpha male hero character like Ian, Stephen and Ben were. But by this point, we've hit the middle of the 60s and we've had films like Hard Day's Night and Help. And all of a sudden, the zeitgeist isn't for heroes anymore. You know, your war films that were massively popular during the 50s and early 60s, all of a sudden, films like that, war films, westerns and so on and so forth, are starting to become passe, and there's a different kind of thinking in films now. And Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton hit it off pretty much straight away, and they bring this new dynamic dynamic to this show. It's more where, of a double act. Yeah, but the new di- I mean, whether it's a good double act or not, the new dynamic is what we're really here to talk about. And the new dynamic is less go out there, find trouble, sort it, but go out there, get into trouble get out of it <laughs> do you know what i mean there's yeah. a distinction there they're very much out having adventures as opposed to getting into bother and so the 
although Jamie starts off as ostensibly the same as Ian, Stephen and Ben, by the time, you know, the production team have worked out that Ben and Jamie are no longer working and they've realised that Ben has become outmoded because the show, just like the decade, has moved on from what the series used to be. So Ben gets sidelined in exactly the same way as Dodo was and, of course, Polly gets sidelined with Ben. So you bring in, first of all, you bring in Victoria, who's absolutely the very definition of the damsel in distress, which kind of works and kind of doesn't because although you've still got the same producers making the program and they still think you need that element to it, actually, in practice, you really don't. So, I mean, you look at Enemy of the World and Victoria is completely sidelined in that story. She does barely anything. You could do that story with just the Doctor and Jamie. Exactly. She does a bit of cooking in episode three. You could do that. You could do that story without... Victoria in its tall, mm. just the Doctor and Jamie, and it would work just as well. So then they get rid of Victoria and bring in Zoe, and the dynamic between the three of them is complete. And so you go out of the 60s with a completely different structure than you came into the 60s with in terms of the companions. And at this point, I would say that although with Ian, Stephen and Ben... It is very much a prerequisite that you have an uh, an alpha male companion in the show at that point to carry that physical side of the storytelling. By the time you get to the end of the 60s, I don't think it would really make a great deal of difference whether Jamie was male or female because he's not there to play a stereotyped gender role. Now, okay, I've got to the end of the 60s. You guys, what do you think? Well, I seem to agree with most of that. When you look at the companions afterwards, we won't go into them now, but none of them are alpha males, are they? Um, and even when Harry was brought in to be that kind of thing, it, it quickly he quickly became a, a foil for Tom Baker's Doctor. So I think you're you're absolutely right about the fact. That it, it definitely there's a turning point. It definitely changes with Jamie. You've got them being like brothers. Actually, it's like an older brother, Patrick Troughton. They're messing about with foam. They're having a laugh, and it, it you know, and it's it stands. You can tell it's such a great relationship and such mm. a, a well-built um, kind of relationship that they had over those episodes, uh, which was so well done, so brilliantly done. That uh, it's ca- their relationship ca- affects that the back- way the stories are told rather it, than the other way around. Exactly. By the time you get Jamie and, and Patrick Troughton working together after a few episodes, a few stories, you can tell the writers are starting to think about them together, what they can write for them, as opposed to just throwing a script at them and getting them to act it. Mm. Um, so it's written for them. But yeah, no, they came back in the two Doctors. Patrick Troughton didn't come back with a, with a female companion. He came back with Jamie. So yeah. it's testament to the, you know, think- to the, the way it was... I really love Harry Sullivan as a companion, but I think you could take him out of the Tom Baker stories and I don't think you'd notice a massive difference. We'll think... get to the 70s, Mark. Yeah, okay, yeah, but what I'm trying to say <laughs> you, is that... You're I trying can't... to make JR cry here. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that I don't think you could do that with Jamie. I don't. I think he's that yeah. much hmm. part of that era that I don't think you could take him out of it and it would be the same. No, absolutely not. But what about Ian, Stephen and Ben? I mean, 
I don't think there are, but is there an argument to say that you could take any of those characters out of those stories and would Doctor Who still be the same series? Yeah, it would, apart from Ian. I think Ian was a template. He was the best at being the action hero and he had the, you know, he had the acting chops and he had a, I think he had better But I'm not saying, but my point is not that who was the best actor or who was the best character, but I, I don't think that up until... Patrick Troughton and the introduction of Jamie, I don't think you could do without any of those three characters. Mm. You needed them there. Mm. Oh, yeah, I suppose with William Hartnell being the way he is, yeah. I think Stephen's character takes on a little bit of uh, what Barbara would do, because he's a bit more... Although, having said he's that... He's both Ian he... and Barbara. Yeah, because I mean, Ian Chesterton would stand up to the Doctor in, a, in some respects, but I think Barbara really has a go at him from time to time, and I think that tends to carry over into Stephen's character. Yeah. You watch something like the Daleks Master Plan, he's just completely going loopy and at him by the end of it. as well, of course. Yeah. Simon? Hmm. I, what I find interesting is this, <clears throat> this overlap, we don't know a lot because it's mainly missing episodes, but this, this overlap period between Ben Polly and then Jamie. I remember when I was much younger finding that really interesting particularly when I read The Highlanders, that all of a sudden there were two more male characters in the TARDIS at once. Um, well, were you right... aware, before you carry on, that Jamie yeah. wasn't supposed to be a companion, but they asked him to stay on because they all enjoyed working with him so Oh, much. yeah, you've mentioned before, yeah. 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 It's, but I, do, I think it's an interesting dynamic, and I, and I think it would be an interesting dynamic to have more than one male companion on, mm. the, tar, uh, on the TARDIS at any one time. You'd almost get this... Um, I don't know. It depends on the the individual relationship. Um, Well, the odd thing about it is, back in the 60s especially, but right through the 70s and 80s, and up almost until today, television series tended to have more male regulars than they tended to have female regulars. And that's just about the only time in Doctor Who, you know, the period between 1966 and 1974, when that's been true. Generally speaking, there's either been an absolute balance or it's actually been weighted towards the female characters. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I think if you did have more than one male character at any one time, um, it, it would become, I don't know, it's almost like there's only so much testosterone the TARDIS can take. It would become um, like fest. a... Gr- it would become a bit Scooby-Doo. You'd have this... <laughs> yeah, right, Mark. Uh, it would become, yeah, that kind of Scooby-Doo group of guys going out and having an adventure, and uh, it, it, would, it, would, it would, well, I just think it would be interesting. Well, you could also make the argument that too much testosterone in the TARDIS wouldn't work because the TARDIS crew tends to be, by and large, post-Ben Jackson, tends to be a largely effeminate crowd. The Doctor is seen as an essentially feminine character because he doesn't defeat problems through force, but through thinking. He sort of will empathise into a problem to understand it and defeat the problem that way rather than just overriding it in the way, for example, a military drama might do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hate to say this, bring this up, but Seeds of Doom, once again, that's a problem with that story. There's a problem, blow it up. But you know what I mean? (laughs) So, going back to where we were in The Male Companions, that's something that happens after 1966. And, of course, that brings us to the 70s. 
because seventies is it takes us on from uh, Second Doctor and Jamie, but it also takes us a step back because it brings in the military. And although some people wouldn't call them companions as such, they do fulfil the role in the program of the regular foil to the Doctor. So I don't think we should discount them here. So the Brigadier and, you know, Benton and Yates, the unit boys, they're regulars in the early 70s. We have to talk about them. And it's interesting going back to what Lee said about you're kind of having a sort of older brother, younger brother mm-hmm. dynamic between the Doctor and Jamie. Because all of a sudden when John Pertwee comes in, you've kind of got the older brother, younger brother thing going on again. But now, of course, the Brigadier is playing the older brother, the sensible one, mm-hmm. and the Doctor is playing the younger brother, the wayward one. So it's a different play on a similar dynamic. And, of course, you have the alpha male thing all over again, but in an entirely different context. And it's the fact that the context of the show has changed. It's no longer the Doctor and his companion going out and finding adventures, having adventures, looking for things to do, like it was when you were with Jamie. But it's kind of gone back a bit to the way the program was when you had Ian and Stephen and Ben there, in that it becomes a series of dilemmas that the Doctor and his friends have to deal with. And so you've got that interesting new dynamic you know, going on through those four years there. I mean, out to you guys, the unit years. No, you're right. The testosterone in, in the unit is it more than makes up for missing the action man in Chesterton or somebody like that. It, um, that's who they are, isn't it? It's an amalgam of all blokes. Uh, sitting right there and then you've got the doctor being the thinker again the scientist well no um, the doctor's actually a bit of an action man well, no, no. for years it, as well yeah he is of course he is he takes on that role but you've you've he is still a thinker he's a very much a scientist he's got a lab and everything um and then you get the companion uh in the middle so it's mm, i don't know it's, but it's, it's a different one, show in the early 1970s yeah. entirely different it, you know the first seven years six or six seasons first six seasons is an entirely different show. And then for five years in the Pertwee years, because, I mean, even when he got, you know, the gift of travelling in the TARDIS back, it didn't entirely go away. It's almost that those five years are an entirely discreet five-year period in the show when it actually behaves like a different show entirely. Yeah, it's it's all of a sudden very interesting, isn't it? You've got... William Hartnell with the action man because he's old he needs an action man then you get Patrick Troughton who's got a kind of an action man but actually they're both active Jamie doing a bit more fisticuffs but they're still boyish boyish pranks and then you get into the 70s and John Pertwee's a kung fu master um, you know and Tom Baker's young and fit and can lay a few punches and everybody else on after that it, you know you don't need that um, that companion that's going to thwack somebody in the face. You just don't need it anymore. So. Well, some, and something entirely different happens when Harry comes along because it's not just a case of him being cast as an action man and because Tom Baker's cast as the Doctor, you know, there's no need for the action man. I don't think it's entirely that. I think the trouble is Barry Letts has cast Harry Sullivan to be in Barry Letts' version of the show which means Harry Sullivan would essentially be a replacement for somebody like Mike Yates. But of course, yeah. then Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes come in. Yeah, and they sweep the unit so away, it, don't they? 
Yeah, so it's not so much that Tom Baker doesn't need an action man, it's that Doctor Who is no longer the action man show that it's been for the past five years, and so the action hero is redundant again because you're back in season 12 to, you know, seasons 4, 5 and 6 where the Doctor and his companion or companions are just going off and looking for adventures to have. Yeah, I because find that... Harry a more compelling character because he's not the sort of natural action hero. He's more of a... Yeah. I can identify more with him because I think... But you look at what he does in Robot. In yeah. Robot, he is the guy who goes in undercover just exactly like Mike Yates did. Mm you know, getting Mike Yates into trouble in the first place, yeah. in The Green Death. Harry Sullivan in Robot is playing Mike Yates. And that is the Barry Letts, Terence Dick story. Yeah. And then you get into Ark in Space, and Harry Sullivan sidelined. And mm. like I said a few minutes ago, it's Sarah Jane who's doing the alpha male yeah. stuff in the Ark in Space, <laughs> and Harry Sullivan's redundant. Mm. Yeah, and not, then he's not quite. I know what you mean, though. He isn't quite redundant, is he? Because he's no, he is. Yeah, he's, it, he's a great character, but he's yeah. entirely redundant in the story. If you took Harry Sullivan out of the Sontaran experiment, Sontaran experiment would not be any different whatsoever. It's true. No. Same for Genesis. Same for Revenge of the Cybermen. Same for Terror of the Zygons. Yeah, it's but funny. I'm glad I he is in them. I have. Oh yeah, written, I have that written down. That if you'd have taken him out, it would make much difference. Mm. But he, ha he, you know, as a character, he excels in his medical side. So they they try and crowbar some stuff in for him to do. Yeah, but that's not quite the same as him having a function in the plot. Crowbarring <laughs> plot functions in for him to have. He's essentially somebody for Sarah Jane to have a chat with every now and again. Yeah, when the doctor's he's... being clever. Mm. Don't you love him, though? He's brilliant. Oh, he's great. But isn't it interesting that from that point on, any male character's brought in, I know, and I know it's fairly sparse. Well, we but... won't get to the 80s, but talk about the rest of the 70s. There's not a single male companion for the rest no, of the 70s. All. Not at all. There's no need. And, wh and why is that? That is because they hit Rampant on such sexism. a... No, it's because they hit on such <laughs> a perfect formula with the Doctor and Jamie in the late 60s. The Doctor just needs a foil. Yeah. He doesn't need multiple foils anymore because they're not telling those kinds of story anymore. Mm -hmm. So the early days of Doctor Who and the early 70s of Doctor Who, those are gone now. So we move into a, a stage of the programme where the Doctor just needs one person. And, of course, nobody is going to cast a, a, a series with just two regular characters. They're not going to cast them both of the same gender. So the Doctor's a man. His companion's a woman. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, the sort of eye candy for the dads is a big factor in who you cast as the woman. But the fact is, it would work with Sarah, with Leela, and with the Romanas. It would work ostensibly the same in terms of the plots and the stories, whether that was a woman or a man. It is just a function of casting two characters one of each gender, that the companion happens to be a woman for all that time. And they happen to be stronger women as well. Um, you know, well, they have to be because yeah. of what I've just said, essentially. They're a foil to the Doctor. They're no longer a damsel in distress. Do you, is there um, an argument for the fact that the Doctor's become much more of a multi-layered character? He's almost a world in himself, isn't he? It's almost like there's there's so much personality wrapped up in the Doctor, certainly for the time of Tom Baker, that there's almost isn't room for any more characters in the TARDIS. Does that make mm, sense? I know what you're saying, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think mm. that's just a 
some something that the actor playing the part facilitates. Yeah. I think if yeah. you'd have put a different I think if you'd have put a different actor in that role with exactly the same script, but, that wouldn't be true anymore. But it's also a big part of the fact that the doctor being at the centre of the stories, a lot of the Pertwee and, and, and certainly with not so much the Trouts, but with the Hartnells, it it was a Gestalt thing. It was the whole group of travellers making the story, but certainly the Doctor's at the centre of the story each time in the Tom Baker era. Um, well, only by force of the actor's personality again. Yeah, okay. They're still... Uh, this is this doesn't change until possibly the modern era, maybe in the 1980s. We'll get to that. But these are still stories that are happening that the Doctor just gets involved in. The stories don't happen because the Doctor's involved in them. And when they do introduce a male character, it's purely a temporary. It's someone like, um, uh, is it Aldred? Is it who's it? Leela ends up with? Or? Yeah, Aldred. Oh yeah, sorry. these are just these are just the uh, you know primary guest characters. Yeah, yeah. Principal guest characters. Sorry, is the word I meant. The David Campbells of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Speaking of which, I've got an idea for later in the show, but I'll come back to that in a minute. But you've just reminded me of it. Mm, good. <laughs> Actually, should use... we do that now before we get into the 1980s? Go on then. Go on. Okay, uh, I was gonna for next week's podcast. You, you guys, do you want to do? I'm gonna give you a choice. I'm gonna take a vote on this. We will do either season 11, which is the Time Warrior through to Planet of the Spiders, or we will do because this is a favourite subject of mine, and we've not done it yet. Post-apocalypse stories in Doctor Who. Ooh, that sounds heavy. Well, that would be the Dalek <laughs> invasion of Earth, invasion of the dinosaurs, and the web of fear, principally, but we might find other examples. I'll go for the post-apocalyptic. Mark? Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, in that case, Simon, your vote is... Outnumbered. It's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next week we do post-apocalypse. Okay. Okay. Before we get into the 1980s, let's go for a couple more emails, shall we? And then we'll get into the 1980s because I think it gets very interesting here. So Andrew Moore says, "Happy New Year to you all. Sorry for my lack of communication, but I've been a bit poorly due to the enforced house arrest. Those apparently useless Christmas presents have been invaluable in filling the time. <laughs> it is time to admit that I really went over the top with my knee-jerk reaction to the time of the Doctor. It really was much better than I initially thought." The last quarter was as good as it gets, and I think my reaction was formed by expecting more whiz-bang in the style of the 50th. Shuffles back to the corner and looks at shoes. Just one last thing. In the 50 Years trailer, the last figure facing the Doctor was a person with a robot hand. Did we ever find out who that was? And I had to say, I didn't have a clue. Mark, you know that trailer better, I think, than the rest of us. The last person we see before the camera know, gets out to Matt Smith. Somebody made a point of saying that it looked like the brigade leader from... Um, oh, Inferno, Inferno, yeah. Inferno. But the robot hand thing I'd never noticed before, so... And also the brigade leader would be an odd choice. Although, you know, they could have thrown that in to reference the brigadier yeah. and to reference a particularly um, well-loved story. Hmm. Possibly. Okay, here's another email from Weird Bean. Hi, Blue Boxers. Just listened to Podcast 89 and wanted to say it was a great show. It, oh, this was the one with... This was the round rabbit one. It was really good to hear Al, Doc and the Rev in the flesh. Uh, I mean, hear their voices and not as in gooey replicas. It was good to hear that they're all as eccentric in person, so please have them all back on again in the future. 
Thanks, guys. Weird bean. Well, we can't have them back on, can we? But you can listen to their own show. Exactly. And who was their special guest in the last two episodes of their own podcast? Uh, some chancer. <laughs> okay, we'll throw it out for one last time. Anybody who's listening to this and who heard Round Rabbit and who hasn't gone off and found those three characters' own pod- podcast that they've since started, it's the Diddly Dumb podcast and it's on iTunes and Google it or whatever yeah. and find them. The last They're two like- episodes they've had Starburst Magazine's foremost Doctor Who writer, Paul Mount. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we're gonna have two more to... emails quickly, and then oh, we'll can I just say on. that they're they're, they're the more they're the more Mindy to our happy days, aren't they? Oh, <laughs> I think they probably are. Which one's Morgan? Which one's Mindy? I don't know who's who's the grotesque baby child in the last series. Uh, Doc Whom. <laughs> I'm not getting into that. Doc Whom says, Gentlemen, Richard Hogarth suggested that name, day, and time of the Doctor was the first trilogy since JNT's era. What about Utopia, Sound of Drums, and Last of the Time yeah, Lords? That point. seems to be a trilogy. I don't know, because Sound of the Drums and Last of the Time Lords are the same story. So that's really just two stories. It's just three episodes. Otherwise, you'd have to say Delta and the Bannerman was a trilogy. Mm. Don't I equally have a good point there? even bear thinking about. Okay, changing the subject. You can make any argument stand up if you base it on an unsubstantiated exaggeration. Several times in your podcast reviewing the Matt Smith era, oh, he makes a good point here, but I'm going to discount it at the end anyway. Several (laughs) times in your podcast reviewing the Matt Smith era, fans were painted as being inconsistent and never happy that when Doctor Who does A... All the fans say they'd prefer B, but when he then goes and does B, all the fans say they'd prefer he did A. But the only way you can make that stick is by the use of exaggerated generalisations. Imagine that there were 100 Doctor Who fans, numbered from 1 to 100. Numbers 1 to 50 hate Doctor Who being made like a soap, and numbers 51 to 100 love it being made like a soap. Given human nature, the people complaining always make the louder noise, so when Doctor Who is soapy... Numbers 1 to 50 complain. And then when Doctor Who stops being soapy, numbers 51 to 100 complain. There's no inconsistency or hypocrisy there at all. To make it appear inconsistent, you have to use exaggerated generalisations such as all the fans were complaining about the soapiness and then they all complained when it stopped being soapy. It is more likely to be not the same fans doing the complaining. And the embarrassing truth, which needs to be hidden because it reveals the banality of fans' arguments, is that it's much more likely to be that when Doctor Who is soapy, numbers 1 to 5 complain, and when it stops being soapy, numbers 95 to 100 complain. (laughs) Meanwhile, numbers 6 to 94 get on with their lives. And I would say that, yes, that is a very good point, and clearly it's the truth. But having said that, I do have experience of, oh, God, I've seen this on the same day. People posting hypocritical complaints that Doctor Who isn't enough of A or enough of B by the same person. And I've been doing some research on this, so I can tell you it does happen quite a lot. But one more email, and this is from Hollow Poro, surprisingly enough. That's two diddly-dum emails in a row. He says, hi, JR and the Happy Days gang. Hi. <laughs> that's quite... I'm glad I did that that's email right. now. That's really Because odd. that's uh, 
Quite a nice coincidence. Why me? What? <laughs> he says, I noticed in episode 90 that I was blamed for JR's mispronunciation of Mandragora. Mark? <laughs> Mandragora. How disturbing it must have been for the gang, JR, that you were thinking of me while podcasting with the others. I am, of course... Hang on, has he gone into the world of euphemism here as well? He says, I am, of course, flattered and realise that my thespian tongue roll must have stuck firmly in your probic vent. I look forward to showing you my perpigillium brown sometimes. Yours, Reverend Captain Holoporo, deceased. Okay. Enough of the emails. Let's get back to the male companions. The 1980s. Okay. Uh, can I say one something? word? One. Oh, go on then. Go on then. Well, can I say one word and see if it's the same word as you're thinking? Yes. Flawed. No. The word I was thinking was Adric. I was thinking of the word <laughs> girl, but it's the same thing. <laughs> I was thinking the word wooden. <laughs> well, no, go back to Lee. Lee, what was the word you were thinking of? Girl. Right, here's the thing. Adric is the first primary companion who is male since Jamie back in the 1960s. Harry Sullivan's brought in as an adjunct to Sarah Jane. The unit crowd are always sort of at a secondary distance behind the primary female companion. But when Adric is brought in, even though he overlaps with the end of Romana for a short while. If you look at it, Adric is the companion for season 18. Romana's time is coming up. Canine's on his way. Adric is brought in as the new companion. Now, that's the and first isn't time... Tom so happy about it? Well, no, but the point is, this is the first time that's happened that the new companion should be a male companion rather than a female companion ever since Ben comes in with Polly. So the new companions are Polly and a fella. Jamie comes in by accident. The unit crew come in in fits and starts. Harry comes in to help out with Sarah Jane, who's already there. The only time previously that a new companion has been introduced and it's been a fella has been Stephen Taylor back in 1965. Mm. So this is, I mean, there's Mark saying wooden and there's you saying flawed and I'm saying paradigm shift. Because well, we're talking more about the actor rather than the actual character, aren't we? We're not here to talk about the actor. No, we're here no, to no. talk about the character and how he functions within the series. And I would say there is a massive paradigm shift with the introduction of Adric. It's the first time that, you know, that's been done, that a new companion has been unveiled to the press and the public, and it's been a boy rather than a girl. And, of course, the same thing does happen with Turlo later, but when it happens with Turlo, you already have two established female companions. When it happens with Adric, yeah, like I said just now, there's a slight overlap with Romana, but Romana's obviously on her way. Adric is introduced at that point as the primary companion. This is what I was talking about earlier when I said in the 70s you could have had two men in the TARDIS but they just wouldn't do that. Because at that time, like I say, it was seen that two characters, one of each gender, hit the 1980s and... Okay, this is probably going to sound like I'm stereotyping, but I'm not. I'm saying you get in somebody like John Nathan Turner 
okay, so he's gay. So it might be that he likes the idea of having a young lad in the TARDIS. Not necessarily in that kind of a way, but it just might be that being a homosexual gives you enough lateral thinking to suddenly say to yourself, okay, we don't need to do it the old way. Maybe we can do it a different way. And he introduces Adric to be the companion for the better part of Tom Baker's last season. And if you look at it, okay, Nissa's introduced in Traken, but she's not intended to be kept on as a companion. They asked the actress back, just as they did with Jamie, back in the Highlanders and the story that followed it. So Nissa was never meant to be the companion. In the story, The Keeper of Traken, she is just a guest character. And then Tegan's brought in, in Legopolis, just to carry over to the start of the next Doctor. So from full circle to Legopolis, because, you know, as you remember, a companion doesn't really become a companion until the end of their first story, when they decide to travel. So you've got something like four stories in a row, which is... You know, it sounds insignificant in the bigger picture, but if you look at the fact that it hadn't really been done that way at all before, for about four stories in a row, Adric is the companion. That's a pretty big shift, do you not think? Mm. Mm. I do, and I stand by my word, girl. Because he he doesn't act as the action figure, does he? He does feel like if you'd if he was a female well, character, he's he's acting very similar to say somebody like Dodo. No, I would argue with that. Okay, I would say that Adric. I mean, they in shorthand to the press, they said he's going to come in as an artful dodger type character. And yes, you could if you wanted to boil it down to he's there to get in trouble like the girls in the 60s were, get themselves in trouble and need rescuing. And yes, Adric essentially fulfills the function of getting into trouble and needing rescuing. But whereas in the 1960s, the companions would get into trouble by being girls, and in the 1970s... You sounded just like Strax then. Well, yeah, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I mean, I'm talking in sexist terms, but only because we're talking about sexist times. Well, rather than you know, him, rather than him sort of ending up as the sort of damsel in distress, he'd just get into these problems through being a bit of an idiot, wouldn't he? He'd just, he would, <laughs> yeah, though. but he'd, he'd seem, uh, like, more, yes, more of a naughty schoolboy than well, an no, artful dodger. Well, no, yes, okay. Simon hit the nail on the head there. In the sixties, the companion gets into trouble by being a girl, right? And back in the 1960s, that's all it would take. In the 70s, the companion gets into trouble by being the kind of person who wants to go out and have fun and investigate and see what the world has to offer. And, of course, you're going to run into trouble when that happens. Now, Adric is more like Adric Mitchell. Gets into trouble by being a gullible twonk. No, he gets into trouble by looking for things that would serve to make his life a better place. He is... You know, they called it a shorthand, the artful dodger, but Adric's a very self serving character. You look at full circle. Like Adam, then, really? Yeah, I just said like Adam. Wow. <laughs> Mark is well, tired. <laughs> I am very tired. <laughs> but the point being, Adric is going out and seeing what he can help himself to, and that's how he's getting into trouble. Mm. Okay, that tails off a bit after the end of that season, but through. I mean. 
okay, the stories get a bit weird towards the end, but very definitely in full circle and state of decay. And you could argue that the character stays that way up until the end, while Christopher Bidmead's still in charge, because it's the same in Castrovalva. And to a greater or lesser degree, there's elements of it in the other stories, but those are the primary ones in which Adric is sort of more or less the centre of attention. But he gets in trouble by going out and being self-serving. That's a completely different dynamic to the dynamic you had with Romana or Leela, and it's a completely different dynamic to the one you had with Zoe and Jamie. Yeah, and eventually it's his downfall. <laughs> well, in a way, it kind of is. They kind of spin it a different way. He wants to get home, he has to work it out, he has a go at the Doctor, blah, blah, blah. By this time, they don't really know what to do with the character because the script editor's left and they don't have a script editor, so the companion kind of goes by the wayside. That's that's just something that happens in television. You know, that's what happened with Leela when mm. um, Hinchcliffe, Holmes and Boucher all left the show and the character was left hanging in the air a bit. But I've got to say that Adric, in spite of the fact that I don't think he was particularly well written or particularly well acted, I do think that you know if you take away the you know people are always saying john nathan turner didn't understand certain things and he would just say oh shopping list we'll have this character who's not full dodger and yes on the very surface of it it's a bit of a throwaway idea this character's an artful dodger get down underneath the surface of it and look at the fact that this character is getting in trouble by being self-serving that's a very interesting character to throw into an a program like that and actually i think adric is a massive massive change not just for the sort of gender specific reasons i said about just now but because it's the first time where a character has come in and changed the dynamic of the show or changed the dynamic of you know the character within the show the sort of archetype of the character within the show when it's been done deliberately as opposed to accidentally Yes, Sarah Jane is supposed to be this feminist, but essentially she fulfills the same role as, you know, the companion before her and the companion before that. And yes, I think the character of Jamie changed things up considerably, but that was an accident out of what happened to the show because of what the character was doing in it and the actor was doing in it rather than a deliberate choice. But Adric is the first time that somebody's made a deliberate choice to change the way the show operates with its archetypes. And I think, you know, for all that we take the piss relentlessly out of Adric and Matthew Wardhouse and everything else, and for all that I don't particularly like season 18, you have to respect that. That is a big thing to do. I think looking back at it now, I just find the character incredibly irritating. But as a 10-year-old kid, I thought it was really exciting having this young lad as a, you know, what 10-year-old boy watching that program wouldn't want to be that companion. So there was obviously something that worked, but yeah. Maybe they recognised that too. Maybe yeah. they recognised the fact that Doctor Who is watched by 10-year-old boys and maybe they should have a character in there that they can empathise with mm. rather than, you know, it having to be this sort of 20-year-old girl. Sort well, of. Yeah. This is why I use the word flawed because Adric was a flawed character and, and, it, and it instantly stirred the pot up, didn't it? Um, and that followed through with uh, um, Turlow as well. And, you know, when we get there, uh, the later male characters as well. The male characters don't come in as a specific role, apart from making it a slightly different, even even up to Rory. And we, I know we haven't got there well, yet. Well, we'll come even... to the modern era in a minute, because yeah. the modern era is quite different again. 
but, but um, yeah, but the male character has to be flawed in some way to contrast with the Doctor's kind of perfection. Yeah, I suppose. Oh, I don't know. The Doctor's pretty flawed. Yeah, he's the you know I mean? He's a clever bugger, though, isn't he? He is a clever. He bugger. might be a clever bugger, but there's an inherent flaw right in the middle of his character, and that's his. He's on the run from his own species. Yes, but he solves the the riddles most of the time at the end, doesn't he? He solves the crimes. He, he sorts it all out. Whereas, he does. Whereas Adric norm, normally balls us up in the first place. <laughs> I don't know, though. I think when Stephen Moffat puts dialogue in Matt Smith's mouth, you know, I have a plan. Oh, I always tell them that. I don't really. He speaks for most of the programme. The Doctor never has a plan. He just blusters through. And in the end, something strikes him and he solves it all in the last five minutes. It's not a... Yes, there's a case to say he absorbs the first four episodes worth of information and then comes up with a stroke of genius to solve the plot. But essentially what you're saying is he just muddles through and something pops into his head. Hmm. Anyway, Turlow. Turlow's interesting and that Turlow is Adric squared. Adric comes into the show. He is... Like I said just now, this character who facilitates the plots by being self-serving. Well, Turlow facilitates the plot by yeah. being, you know, that amount of self-serving squared. And I think it works to a degree. I think it kind of gets forgotten a bit in the middle. I know we're not supposed to, but it does help you've got a decent actor in the role. Well, yeah. But I mean, if you look at his first three episodes... And, right, there's an interesting duology going on here. If you look at Turlow's first three episodes, everybody's going to say, oh yeah, he was trying to kill the Doctor. Well, no. What's more interesting about that is he was trying to escape from Earth. Killing the Doctor was merely the price he had to pay in order to get off Earth. What's really interesting about the character is that, yes, he's self-serving, like Adric was, but he's self-serving for a reason. He's been essentially imprisoned on this place, this planet where he doesn't want to be. And in order to get off this planet, he has to pay a price. And the first three stories they're in are not just about the price, but about the fact that it means that much to him to get away from this place that he would, he believes, be prepared to pay that price. I think that's far more interesting than merely the fact that he was trying to kill the Doctor. And, you know, that does disappear a bit after Enlightenment, when you get into, you know, Turlow as just being a regular. But it doesn't disappear entirely. There's always a feeling with Turlow that he's not, you know, of the Earth, that he is with the Doctor in order to um, serve his own purpose, rather than just purely for the fun of it. And, of course, when you do get to the end of his story... All this unravels. Mm. Uh, thoughts on Turlow? Well, it's a game of two halves with Turlow, isn't it? Poor thing. I mean, he's he's got a great storyline, um, and like you say, it, it's really interesting. That you finally get somebody who's considered a companion who is about to do the Doctor in. You don't, you've never had that before. Something really different. And the fact is that he stays on afterwards. He finds enlightenment. He work, you know, he works it out. It's really exciting, but unfortunately, obviously, the character, the writers, they don't do enough for him. They don't use a Turlow at all. After he does that. fall into that sort of Harry Sullivan role, e- doesn't he? Even less so, I think. He's almost like a bit of thin paper floating around in the background. They've they've really 
you know, messed it up for, for what's essentially could have been a really very good character. Yeah, Resurrection of the Daleks, doesn't he just basically bounce between the the spaceship and the Earth? And that's all he does, really, isn't it? Doesn't actually do much at all. And in turn, yeah. he spends most of the story looking at Tegan's bum. Well, so did I, to be fair. It was a bonus, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what I mean is, if he was taken out of the of Doctor Who after his three great, three or four great stories, um, then it would have been quite nice to have known Turlow being that character. You know, he, he finally finds enlightenment, and maybe the Doctor takes him home, and that would have been a great little kind of yeah, like a mini arc. Yeah, a nice mini arc. Do you know what would have been interesting with Turlow is the whole Adric thing, you know, uh, the sacrifice, and that, in theory, is uh, Adric finding what's the word? Is 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 he's um, oh, what's the word? Brother, he, he's making something of himself. He's making uh, good of himself. Oh, I can't think of the word. But I just think if Turlow had ended his time in the way that Adric did, I think it the Americans been would very call it very closure. different. Closure, yes. Certain amount of closure and I don't think retribution isn't the right word. Oh, I can't think of the right word. I know what you're saying. Redemption. Though. Redemption. Redemption, yeah. He would be redeeming himself if he sacrificed himself for the Doctor. The um, fact is, Adric, in spite of the fact that he, it was a really interesting idea that they didn't quite know what to do with, they still did at least pay lip service to that idea throughout his year and a half on the programme. And of course, when he goes out, he goes out of the show because of the way he came into the show, essentially. Whereas Turlow, in between those stories at the start and that story at the end, they really don't know what to do with him. So, yes, definitely there's a case that between, what are we saying, The King's Demons and Resurrection of the Daleks, he's a character in need of a character. Yeah, Planet of Fire, I think he, they, they find something to do with him, and that's, that's it, isn't it, really? Well, yeah, and that's where it goes <laughs> out. Shall we have another quick email? Yeah, go on in. We've got three or four longer ones. We'll save those to the end, but I've got a very short one, and then we'll do the modern male companions. And it's from Al No to complete our trio of diddly dummers. He says, Dear Anne, the boys, and JR, yes, Voyager, totally. The literary agent thing? We need to talk. The Doyle Watson thing? We need to talk. Yours, synchronicitically, Al. He made a typo there, but I've read it anyway. (laughs) That's very cryptic. No idea what he's talking about. But it's always nice to read people's emails, don't you think? I'm I'm glad you don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) I knew knew what he was on about with The Voyager. Isn't he on about the Colin Baker cartoon strips being better than TV series? Ah. Oh, very likely. Mm. No, I agree, Joe. I think if someone takes the time to write into the show, you should read out their emails. Do you ever read emails out on Nerdology, Mark? I don't get any. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. I've read out a couple, yeah. Mm. The very few I have received. Glad to hear it. Okay, modern era of the show. And... That's where it all changes. (laughs) Yeah, well, what you have here is not just um, the male... In the old series, you'd call a male companion a companion if they joined the Doctor's adventures, travelled around with the Doctor for a bit, and then left the Doctor's adventures. In a modern era, Russell T. Davis, and to a certain extent Stephen Moffat, although Stephen Moffat kind of consolidates it a bit, 
does something very different. And I would say to a greater or lesser degree, Mickey is as much a companion in that first series with Christopher Eccleston as the Brigadier, for example, or perhaps a better example yet is Yates or Benton were during any of the seasons with John Pertwee. Not in all the stories, but in a number of adventures and definitely a kind of a bedrock that the series, rather than the character of the Doctor, comes back to, to touch base with, in order to express to an audience how the story is progressing. Now, if you look at Mickey and Rose, he's absolutely appalling, right? Mm -hmm. He's just this nothing of a nobody who, you know, gets taken by the alien menace, gets rescued at the end, and is no better a person for it. But if you look at him in his very second story, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, Rose has gone off, she's travelling with the Doctor, and although Russell T. Davis is showing a more emotive and emotional journey than you would have had probably during the classic series with the sort of female companion, the sort of archetypal female companion, what you do have is Mickey. In the second story, the Aliens of London story, Mickey actually does something, and at the end of that story, the Doctor asks him if he wants to come along. People forget this. People think Mickey gets invited along for the ride in series two, you know, at the end of school reunion when he goes then. Mm. But no, that's when he's ready to go. The Doctor's ready to take him at the end of World War Three. So now you've got Mickey coming back in Boomtown and then again in the story at the end. Mickey is, by this point, a sort of de facto companion in much the same way as Yates and Benton were. He's a touchstone for the series. And when uh, the real shame of it is when he actually does go off in the TARDIS, and this is where I think Ross T. Davis really gets it wrong, I think he does really well with Mickey in series one as this touchstone for the series to sort of demonstrate to the audience where it's going and how well it's doing. Mm -hmm. But then in series two, when Mickey should be invited aboard the TARDIS and should go along and have adventures, he gets one. Mm. You know, he proves himself in school reunion, gets invited aboard. Then he's in the Stephen Moffat story where he is completely and utterly sidelined because Stephen Moffat obviously yeah. didn't know what to do with him. Mm. And then he's in the Cyberman two-parter when he becomes purely a plot function and the fact that he is a inverted commas companion has nothing to do with what he does mm. in that story whatsoever. And there's he's another just one there. of as well. Yeah, he's just there to facilitate the plot. And then he comes again in, you know, comes back again in the two-parter at the end and again, he facilitates the plot. It's like all that great work that was done with Mickey yeah. in the first mm. series in order to prepare you to have a TARDIS team of three in the second mm. series. Mm. And it all goes to waste. And then, just to make things even worse, Russell T. Davis, instead of taking Mickey along after World War Three, you suddenly get Adam Mitchell for two episodes where we get to see the Adric that the Doctor doesn't take to and gets rid of. <laughs> mm. And then, to make matters even worse, <laughs> instead of... And I, and I love these stories, right? So, you know, it pains me to say this, but to compound 
one mistake with another. Once Adam's gone, you then get Jack Harkness, mm. who's brought in purely because Russell T. Davis likes the idea of the character and knows not what to do with him. Yeah. Stephen Moffat actually having or or not having because he doesn't do it till the following year com- the following year completely messes up the Mickey Smith story in The Girl in the Fireplace but in The Empty Child he does a wonderful job of introducing Jack Harkness yeah. because he makes that story about Jack Harkness mm-hmm. about Jack Harkness's investigation that story comes out of the character and everything that happens in that story is perfectly in key with that character it's a brilliant story for jack and then he's in boomtown where he does nothing and then he's in the final two-parter where he does nothing and then he's gone what a complete with, and utter waste in the case of mickey and also probably more to a lesser extent with um rory it feels like they those companions are being sort of neutered it's like they're being brought along because they're with their female companion and oh, no, playing second I think it's the opposite to... with Rory. Yeah, but I, we'll come like to I that. Said, I, don't, I think it's not as much with Rory, but in the early days it feels like that. But he ends up being able to prove himself, and he becomes a much stronger character. But I do feel that, particularly with Mickey, um, the way he's treated by Rose is pretty awful, really. And the mm. Doctor doesn't know any better or doesn't care, and they just. It's like they're rubbing his nose in it. They're having all these great With, adventures. and he's. But that's the way he's being treated by Russell T. Davis mm. because was, he's messed up his story big time. I would yeah. say with, with Mickey and with Adam, there's this big thing of whether they, they're worthy. I think, mm. I think where Adam is an interesting character and where I think it works in as much as I bloody loathed him by the end of it. And it was just like, yeah, you know, you punched the air when he got his comeuppance. Yeah, and you were supposed he was, to. Yeah, because he wasn't yeah. worthy for the. But I, personally, I didn't have you feel... noticed though? Just before you go on, yeah, have you noticed his first name starts with the same two letters as Adric? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Simon. Carry no, on. No, no, it's all right. It's uh, but I always feel the same with Mickey. I don't feel he's worthy. You know, I I, I personally see, wouldn't have liked to have seen him on the TARDIS. For any no, I think he is time, worthy, right? but I think Russell T. Davis really messes it up. Mm. No, I think you're wrong, Simon. I think um, Mickey, uh, if he'd have gone onto the TARDIS and had a fair crack of the whip, you'd have found something quite interesting because there was a dynamic going on of the ex-boyfriend and the kind of new boyfriend and all of that. I mean, it, it comes out quite nicely in School Union. The whole whole kind of, you know, um, it happens with, I suppose, David Tent with the two women. So it's like, the, you know, the missus and the ex sort of thing. School Reunion shows how it could work, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. It, it would work, in fact. And it could have been quite a gentle, quite fun um, relationship between the three of them if they'd have just stuck with it for about three or four episodes. But you're right. In fact... It, it peaks and then troughs all of a sudden. Mickey suddenly the, is, is nothing again. The point with Mickey is, and I think Aliens of London, or rather World War Three, demonstrates this perfectly, Mickey could have been the canine of the modern series <laughs> in that... In that, he's a character that the sort of two primary char- characters don't take very seriously, mm. and yet he, he does. He saves the day, yeah. And he does that in World War Three. Mm, and, yeah. you know, to a certain extent, he's there in school reunion doing the same thing. And he's always just on the outside of the relationship of the other two, much as K-9 is, purely because of the fact that he is a tin dog, you know, during the 1970s. 
And yet they need him there because he solves stuff. Mm. And that's what Mickey should have been. Mm. And because he just gets used as a plot function in Rise of the Cybermen and is then forgotten about, it's all to waste. But then his his introduction in Rose, he, he was introduced as a bit of a prat, if I'm honest. He was, but deliberately so, so that when you get to Aliens of London, so can you can show him. him developing, show mm. that that's not all there is to him. Yeah. That's a deliberate choice. It's just that after those first five episodes, mm. once you've got to that point, Russell T. Davis then doesn't seem to know what to do with him. But that aside, he is one of those characters or one of those companions that's probably had the most consistent development really, as a, as a character. I know that he's sidelined plot-wise and all that kind of stuff, but as a character, he's grown and he took a journey. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he's the only one who's from start to finish. You can see him changing in, from zero to hero. I don't get there with Rory, unfortunately. And at the end, Mickey does get, a you know, a brilliant last scene or last sequence at the end of the Cyberman story where he does get to go off and be the hero. But you do feel that that's almost, in spite of the fact that that's what should have happened with his character, you do feel that Russell T. Davis has rushed to that point in order to get rid of him. Yeah, and the um, needless pairing up with um, Martha is a bit... Well, yeah, that's, you know, Russell T. Davis dotting his I's and crossing his T's at the end of his tenure, really. Mm. That's fair enough, I don't mind that. No, okay. But look, Rory then... I think is the opposite of Mickey because, given what I've just said about... He's likeable. No, 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 no. I'm talking about plot functions now. <laughs> okay. Given what I've just said about Mickey's plot function to be the one that's disregarded by the other two, but that solves stuff. Right. If you look at the sort of disregarding aspect of that, you've got a relationship between three people that is, by definition, a triangle of sorts. I'm not talking about a romantic triangle necessarily. I'm just talking about a character triangle. So, you know, the the different branches of a triangle are always going to be, you know, a different kind of relationship between the three characters. And Mickey's place in that triangle is to be sort of looked down on by both of the other two. Mm. Or for want of a better phrase, Mickey's always going to be the lesser part of that triangle. So, that triangle has a strong bond between Rose and the Doctor and Mickey is the weak bond between the pair of them. But what should have happened is that he should have been a weak bond that was a glue between those two characters. Fast forward to the 11th Doctor and Amy and Rory and actually the dynamic you've got here, once Rory has had his full introduction, because what Stephen Moffat does here is, and this is what he likes to do, but you don't really notice him doing it a lot of the time. He'll take something that Russell T. Davis has done and either forgotten about or allowed not to become, you know, fully flowering. And he'll take it and he'll say, okay, this is what you should have done. Let me try. And so Rory gets a year of introduction just like Mickey did, where he starts off as a bit of a zero and by the end of it, he's a bit more of a hero. You know, the guy who waits 2,000 years outside the Pandorica in the last episode in that series, and who gets to marry the girl. Unlike Mickey, who gets left behind, he gets to marry the girl. Yeah. But then, the year following that, you've got all three of them travelling on the TARDIS, which is what should have happened with Mickey. And the triangle's different. The stronger bond now is between Rory and Amy, and the weaker bond 
is the Doctor. And although the Doctor is still at the top of the triangle, it's like a triangle that's weighted towards the bottom. Mm. It's a very different character dynamic. And I think that what, and people won't agree with this probably, but I think that what Stephen Moffat's done here is something really clever and interesting with the format of the series where he's made the Doctor the outsider again, Mm. which takes you right back to Ian and Barbara at the very start of the series. And I don't think that's been recognised enough. No, no, it's great. It worked so well, so that when they did finally leave, um, you felt the you felt the gap when they went, and it was just it was interesting that that Rory, the 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 journey of Rory, certainly in the consciousness of a lot of a lot of the fans, is that he became the, the more likable character than Amy. Yeah, and yet. In a lot of people's, a lot of people's eyes, a lot of people wanted more Rory and less Amy, didn't they? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you take each episode on its individual merits, Rory shines every time for me. I think he's a great character, great to write for. And I think he, and the he actor works for, shines perhaps yeah. more than the character really does. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, I think what he's done with the with the, with the words is very good. But um, I think as, he's just over, there. over his whole story. It it's just a bizarre, bonkers catalogue of weird things that have happened to him that has not changed who he is until the very last few episodes, just like Amy's changed in the last few episodes. Finally, we get an Amy and Rory that we've always wanted in those last few episodes. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's frustrating because I love Rory, and I think if you're going to wait 2,000 years for somebody, that's going to change you. So they should have really thought about that. That would have made such a much more interesting... Uh, thing that you know, Rory has become a lot more wise, maybe a lot more stronger, a lot, di- a lot more different. And how would Amy react to him now? He's a different type of person, waiting all that time. I don't, he just came back as being the kind of you know funny, comedic, slightly miserable-looking, big-nosed guy, <laughs> which actually I really love him for. But character development-wise, it didn't, it didn't happen, and it's a shame. I think it's a shame. It's a bit of a waste. I don't know. I think there is development there. I just think it's subtle. It is. He goes from the guy who's afraid to the guy who's comfortable. Mm. And when I say comfortable, I don't necessarily mean comfortable with aliens and monsters and strange situations, but I mean comfortable with his place within that universe. Yeah. You know, he 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 he's the guy who rails against all that kind of stuff at the start, Mm. and at the end, even though he doesn't like that kind of stuff. He not only accepts it, but he kind of welcomes the fact that that is something that he was almost born to be in. Yeah. In a it's, way. It's interesting that, that, again, the dynamic has changed from the early days, um, you know, right back to William Hartnell being a grandfather and a wizard. And, and now you, you get this kind of grandfather, wizard person in a young body um, who's acting, trying to act like a flatmate. You know, it's almost like it's a flying flat, a flying flat in space. You know what I mean? They're all kind of the, the two of them having a shag up top, and you know he's busy fixing the toaster, sort of thing. It's kind of it's like a flatmate thing. It's, you're living with a nerd, you're living with a geek, you're living with somebody who's a bit more beyond their years. But yeah, and you're right actually that the weight of the triangle has dipped underneath. So you know, Matt Smith's Doctor is kind of the outsider in his own TARDIS. He's the outsider, but he's a very He's a, a weight. He's a rock in his own TARDIS as well. He's become, you know, the most important thing 
in the series again, which we didn't see in the 70s and 80s. But at the same time, you know, you've got... I don't know where I'm going with that. Sorry. I was, I was going okay. to say that and I've forgotten. <laughs> well, before we leave the companions and just do the last few emails and get out of here, because we have been going on for a long time, I think we should just have a quick word about Craig. Because... I think what's happened here, and yes, Gareth Roberts has written these two episodes, but, you know, he's written these two episodes either with Stephen Moffat's blessing or, you know, under discussion with Stephen Moffat. But what's really happened here is that we've kind of been given a glimpse as to what it might be like if the Doctor didn't have a female companion, but just a male companion. Mm. And, you know, leaving aside all the fish-out-of-water sort of you know, Crocodile Dundee stuff that you get with the Doctor, the comedy stuff, what you actually get is an interesting... across as great mates, don't they? Yeah, and you get an interesting glimpse of what that relationship could be like if that were the permanent relationship in the TARDIS. You can imagine quite easily what, you know, Craig and the 11th Doctor would be like if they were there for a series. You know, if that was the dynamic for a series... And I think it's interesting that he's done that because I think that does pave the way for, you know, somebody to possibly do a series where it's just a male doctor and a male companion, perhaps, mm-hmm. for a year mm. some point in the future. Not with Peter Capaldi, who's again going to be the older doctor, but I mean, assuming that you have younger doctors again after Capaldi. Ah, but um, interestingly, I think the space is there for them to introduce a male companion to pair up with Clara. I think yeah, I'm talking about maybe. without a female companion, Simon. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just I'm just saying with the way things are shaping. And my money is on the teacher guy who runs in at the start of the day of the doctor when she's writing on the blackboard and he runs in and says, Oh, there's a phone call from your doctor and I think it's him. Why do you think that? A hunch. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I can see his hunch from here. It's not very pleasant. Um <laughs> No, me and Simon were both talking about this and uh, kind of came up independently with that thought, actually, um, about the you know the idea that there could be a new male companion in the TARDIS and the Doctor watches his companion fall in love within the TARDIS. So not actually like a Amy and Rory where they're already together. So you actually see something happening from uh, you know uh, a stranger coming on board. About the Craig and the Doctor thing, um, it, when you mentioned it, it, kind of I don't know why it just Jamie popped in my head again is it would have been a similar relationship without the fisticuffs yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah that would that would have worked I'm not a massive James Corden fan my wife sat in a hot tub with him but you know it uh, doesn't mean to say I've got to like the guy he, uh, he annoys me a bit I would but I particularly say, think it didn't make you like the guy no not much but in those two episodes, absolutely blinding. We know they've yeah. worked together on the History Boys, so we know they've got some history. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, that would have been great, wouldn't it? That would have been fantastic. Three or four episodes with Craig on board. And Stormageddon, please. <laughs> didn't you, Ger, didn't you say at the time when we were watching those episodes how brilliant to have a few episodes with Craig trying to get back to the baby? That's me. Oh, was that you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said it would be an interesting idea for a series to have him, you know, the TARDIS uh, arrives and he goes off with the Doctor at the start and the Doctor has to get him back at exactly the same point in time at the end of the series because he accidentally left the baby behind. Yeah, that, I think that was my idea, actually. The TARDIS turns might, up, yeah, I think the, it door, might yeah, the door opens, he falls backwards and then he's, he's whipped off and it's like for the next three episodes he's going, but I've got to change his nappy. In fact, it definitely was your idea because I remember I had to read it out because you weren't here for that episode and you left us a note to read out. That's 
That's right, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's it. We've done the companions, haven't we? No mention uh, of chameleon then. Oh, yeah. Pardon? No mention of chameleon then. But it's a robot. That's not a male companion. Well, who was a he? Well, only <laughs> only in as much as, um, what, Maria, is it, in Metropolis was a he? Is that what you look like under your skin, Mark? <laughs> um, shall we scoot through these? I think there's four, and they're all quite long, but shall I go through them? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And yeah. I'm sure they'll bring up things that we want to quickly talk about. Ben from Indiana. Hello, Ben. Hello, Ben. Uh, on the trial of the Time Lord episode we did he said i really enjoyed that so balanced and frankly very honest i appreciate when people cannot like something and clearly put their reasons into words he likes the idea well he's gonna come back to this for a hundredth episode i think but he just i think he prefers it when people who don't like something rather than just saying they don't like it are able to actually articulate what it is about that something they don't like mm-hmm. anyway he also listened to the one I did with Kyle and Warren and said really interesting stuff. Two comments. Firstly, the thing about the Statue of Liberty being able to move unseen in Angels Take Manhattan is established that the building sits right next to the harbour, practically right on the water. How do we know the statue isn't swimming underwater and then popping up on the side of the building? After all, the giant pedestal the statue normally stands on would make an ideal diving platform. (laughs) And secondly, at one point you were discussing Invasion of the Dinosaurs and how much you love that story. I agree, even with the bad effects, it has a real charm to it, and that's because of the quality of the writing and the performances. But then, as you said, as a further defence of that story, you should never allow your abilities to limit your ambition. I think I agree in principle, but tell me, does that rule apply to time flight? (laughs) It may not be a... It may not be a universal rule for excusing Doctor Who. Invasion of the Dinosaurs made sense, and in the end the monsters were not the main driving point in the plot, main driving force of the plot. But time flight is bad all over, regardless of how the crap affects. uh, Regardless of the crap effects. So would that rule save it? I think a real argument can be made that a responsible production team should be able to look at all the pieces, the script, the story, the effects, the director, and determine if it's possible or not. Barry Letts had that ability in that I think he was able to see the bigger picture of Invasion of the Dinosaurs and know that it was a gamble worth taking because the design, the dinosaurs are not the main plot point. But as for Sayward and JNT, well, I honestly don't think they could. Anyway, as always, I'm just a silly fanboy rambling on the food you gave me to think about, Ben. And I think he makes a pretty good point. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. At some point, we shall have to try and mount a defence of time flight and see if we can find something in it to make it... <laughs> oh, lordy. <laughs> that would be fun. Uh, there's another one from Doc Hume. Thanks for your kind words about the Diddly Dumb podcast, and thanks, too, to JR for all his encouragement and advice. As Simon said, JR is indeed the Simon Cowell of podcasting, and we at the Diddly Dumb podcast consider ourselves to be the Sinita of podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer Sinita. (laughs) If JR thinks that getting us into podcasting will dry up our flow of Saki emails into the Blue Box podcast, he's sadly mistaken. Also, if he thinks that personal experience of the medium will temper our opinions, dream on. We are podcasters now. 
Like the mind of the Great One, our egos will now expand and expand until they fill the entire cosmos. By introducing us to podcasting, you have given us the key to egomania cubed. To echo the triumphant words of the Rani, we have the Roy Castle! Mm. Turning to your review of season 23, how very perceptive of them to refer to that season as a trial. As you said, the constant stopping and starting to return to the courtroom removed any dramatic tension from the stories themselves. That whole season is summed up for me by what Rossini said about the music of Wagner. It has wonderful moments, but awful quarter hours. <laughs> Except that the wonderful moments aren't really that wonderful. Keep up the good work, Doc. Thank you, Doc. Hmm. Um, trim to... Trim. Trim to Warther. No, Tim Trawarther. Easy for you to say. <clears throat> it must be getting late and I'm starting to struggle. <laughs> he says, Hi, R. Uh, no. Hi, RJ. <laughs> Hi, JR and Men of the Blue Box. Great episode on the trial season, dudes. I have to agree with the consensus that overall it doesn't work, despite some nice ideas that bob up occasionally. I would have to say it's probably my least favourite season of Who, and there have been times when I have wondered if the original season 23 would have been any better, i.e. the one they were planning when Grade cancelled the series in 1985. The answer I keep coming back to is no, but it would have been bad in the way season 22 is bad. Over-reliance on returning monsters and villains, bitchy doctor and companion combo, Eric Sayward being Eric Sayward. <laughs> Trial's premise was a flawed one, and you are right, JNT should have said no way to it the moment Sayward pitched the idea. You were talking about how the Matrix scenes in The Ultimate Foe were like a crap remix from The Deadly Assassin. Isn't the whole Doctor put on trial by the Time Lords an even crappier remix of Part 10 of The War Games? Oh, yes. Very much <clears throat> so, yeah. You know what? I did mean to mention that, and I completely forgot. Yeah, that's like the Orb doing a version of it. Hmm. Minimalist. It's... Anyway, he says, uh, Are in fact... The I would have... Are you yeah, knocking the say. Orb? No, I'm knocking at the Orb version of a particular remix I once heard of a, of a uh, Mike Oldfield track, which was so dull that even Mike Oldfield said he hated it. Oh, well, you can't polish a turd, that's what they say. <laughs> Do you know that the orb, and I've got no respect for them for the, uh, no respect for them for for this whatsoever. They discovered that uh, according to the rules, a single could be, and I can't remember exactly what the length is, but it's something like thirty six minutes and no longer, any longer than thirty six minutes, and it could no longer be classified as a single. But anywhere up to thirty six minutes could be classified as a single. So they deliberately put out a single that was exactly 36 minutes long so that they would always be in the Guinness Book of Records as having recorded the longest single ever made. That was the Blue Room, wasn't it? Uh, probably, I can't remember. And they appeared on top of the pops no playing respect. chess. I have no respect for that whatsoever. <laughs> was that your elef I'm... elephant impression there as well? Just like... <laughs> I've got... I thought um... he just kicked his chair over in disgust. Put your pockets mm. away. <laughs> right, back to Tim's email. In fact, I would have loved it if this 14-part white elephant had been called Doctor Who and the Unnecessary Remix instead of Trial of a Time Lord. 
I also like Doctor Who and the Appalling Corridor, which, granted, could describe a lot of Doctor Who stories. And talking mysterious planets, another old story Bob Holmes homages in his own Hugh debut, the seminal Crotons. Instead of giant crystalline robots taking their pick of the best and brightest gondlings, you have here a giant horny robot called Drathro taking his pick of UK Habitat's best and brightest, once again with diminishing returns. Oh, and what I mean by horny, I meant his helmet head thing, not anything else, you filthy-minded lot. Which I don't think he really helped himself there, actually, did he, when he (laughs) mentioned helmet head. So... Here is at least one positive thing from each story. It's hard for me to pick a favourite, as they all suck in their own special way. (laughs) (laughs) Fairvoids wins by default, I guess, despite the fact it doesn't make a bit of sense. Mysterious Planet, best thing about it, opening model shot. Mind Warp, the lovely pinky shots of the alien skyline, the truly shocking death of Perry, which upset me greatly when I was 11, and actually still does. Terror of the Vervoids, the fact that it feels like a proper Doctor Who story, and Yolanda Palfrey as Janet. Yes! (laughs) And the ultimate foe, the fact that it was nearly called Time Inc. Great title, and the cliffhanger for episode 13. Finally, two last things. Thanks for reading out my email a few weeks back, JR, and extra special thanks for pronouncing my surname correctly. Simon, out of the McCoy-era Target books, I recommend Remembrance, Happiness Patrol, and the Season 26 Quartet. All are amongst the best of the series. Cheers, Tim. I will take you up on that. And you know, after the nice thing he said about me pronouncing his surname correctly last time... I couldn't even pronounce his first name, all three letters and one syllable of it this week. (laughs) Oh, Uh, one last email from Ian Martin. Loved the trial show, though it felt, though I felt the votes got the stories all about face. Would it have been a better series if they had shown three older stories with the Doctor in the Valyard dissecting them? A Troughton, a Tom and a Davison, perhaps. Oh, how much fun would that be? Then two episodes to sum up. Cheap way of making a season at least. Do you know what, though? I replied to him. That would have been interesting. Would have been like one of those episodes of an American TV series where they do a cheap one to give the cast a week <laughs> off by just showing a clip show. But how much more interesting could it have been if instead of just showing an old Tom, an old... An old Troughton, sorry. An old Tom Baker and an old Peter Davison, that they'd got Patrick Troughton, Tom Baker and Peter Davison back to record a new story each. Oh, I like it. Anyway, um, Ian got back to me a little bit later and said, Morning all, just wanted to say how much I enjoyed the latest podcast about suspension of disbelief. It brought back a bit of a memory from my own media degree, which makes me acknowledge how much I've wrongly taken for granted how the average man in the street ought to have some rudimentary glimmer of comprehension concerning how TV is made. And considering how tired I am, I am so grateful I got through that sentence. <laughs> in the latest series of Sherlock, seeing the Moriarty actor back for the rooftop snog scene in episode one, I thought, hmm, they won't have just got that actor back for that one scene. He'll obviously recur throughout the series somehow. And when this proved to be the case, all my friends assumed I'd heard some rumour that they hadn't. But it's just TV production logic. With this in mind, it's interesting that the two biggest Moffat advocates I know, myself and JR, both seem to be Doylist, 
whereas some other blue boxers strike me as Watsonites. If every fan could identify what side of that divide they fall on, it might go a long way towards exposing and explaining the bigger schisms in fandom. Mm. Inspired by one of your earlier episodes, I'm currently watching, for the first time, The Key to Time. I was too young to have seen the show on transmission and didn't have any desire to watch Tom Baker's stuff until the early 2000s, but this one passed me by. I'm enjoying watching Mary Yowza, Tam, almost as much as I'm enjoying watching oh, Tom's yes. upper lip. <laughs> Reboss was enjoyable. I'm in my 30s. I can imagine children at the time being bored shitless. And on the evidence of... <laughs> Oh. And on the evidence of the Pirate Planet Part 1, I'm underwhelmed. The captain seems to be a tad miscast, and a fat man bellowing doesn't always inspire too much terror. But I'm going ahead with this anyway. Stay warm. Love, Ian, who is currently in Dubai. Bastard. Blimey, if he's, if he's finding the Rybos, or Rybos rather, and the Pirate Planet difficult, wait till you get to the power of Kroll and Armageddon factor. Hey, you leave Kroll alone. I really Actually, like Pirate Planet. Actually, it was only an episode into the Pirate Planet, and I did say that by the end of the story, you do pretty much get an explanation for all the pirates' bluster. Yeah, you do, yeah. Even if not necessarily the overacting, but you can't have everything. Right, I'm going to call it a night because we have been going for two hours now and I've got to get up for work tomorrow. Mm. Me too. Mm. So, thanks guys. That's alright. Always a pleasure. <laughs> um, and next week we are doing oh, post-apocalyptic stories in Doctor Who. Yoo-hoo! Because I love the post-apocalyptic genre mm. and you don't you really... You love the post. Well, and the postman as well, of course. Yeah. But Doctor Who can't really do post-apocalypse stories because of the format of the series. However, it has tried a few times, and I think it'd be interesting to look at those stories and see whether it was successful. And, you know, if it's the kind of thing that the show could successfully revisit, or whether it probably is best that the, the, the format of the series doesn't try to go there. But we'll get to that. Uh, so for now, I guess I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. And you're gonna, are you going to give us uh, a list of what you class as post Because you said Web of Fear, I thought. Is that post-apocalypse? I don't know. The only true post-apocalypse story is Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah. But the Web of Fear and Invasion of the Dinosaurs mm. both play on that genre in that the Doctor and his companions arrive on an ostensibly uninhabited Earth and the story plays out in the sort of ruins of society. It being in evacuated London. So those two essentially are post-apocalypse stories. Could you get away with putting the Sontaran experiment in that? Or was that a bit too far removed? What about Last of the Time Lords? I think Simon's doing himself a disservice. <clears throat> Is that a euphemism? Hey. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs>